Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The city of Sacramento is home to roughly half a million residents, and of the sum 520,000, about 1 in 10 are missing in official representation. That's almost 58,000 Sacramento residents without a city council member, an absence that was expected due to the latest redistricting that takes place along the census every decade. In the meantime, residents are impacted, are going to be represented by Mayor Daryl Steinberg. But without a council member, some Residents question how the city can invest in neighborhoods without hyper-local representation afforded to the overwhelming majority of people within city limits. Joining us to discuss their reporting on why there's a large percentage in the city without a council member is CAP Radio Sacramento government reporter Kristen Lamb. Good morning, Kristen. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Vicki. You know, we were just talking about which residents were impacted, and there are chunks, but they're kind of throughout the city of Sacramento. Where are these residents located without a council member. Pretty much all of East Sacramento and River Park are in the deferred area. Parts of South Sacramento are also deferred, like Valley High, Mesa Grande, Detroit Boulevard, and Delta Shores. But there are pockets in other parts of the city, too. Southern Pacific, the River District, Cal Expo, and Colonial Heights are also deferred. These areas haven't officially had a council member since December and won't have one until December 2024. So what does deferred area actually mean? For the city, deferred voting areas mean that people living there get their city council member vote delayed. In this case, they last voted for a council member in 2018. Instead of voting in 2022, four years later, they won't vote again until 2024. This is related to redistricting, and it's the first time the city is having deferred areas, but they're common for government agencies across the nation. Okay, so they were essentially skipped over the the last election last November. Mm -hmm. Given that the city of Sacramento is very diverse, the council district of one can vary greatly from the next. Were you able to get a better idea of the demographic of the neighborhoods impacted? The city doesn't have a specific breakdown of the about 58,000 people living in deferred areas, but we can look at how these areas overlap with other sources. If you look at the California Healthy Places Index, which compares community conditions throughout the state, these areas vary greatly. Most of the deferred areas in South Sacramento range from less healthy to very unhealthy, whereas areas in East Sac have very healthy community conditions and higher income education levels, and health care access in comparison. ESAC also has a higher percentage of white residents. You actually spoke with people living in these deferred areas. What did they have to say about having or not having a city council member? Were they even aware that they didn't have one? Yeah, the perspectives and experiences vary. Uh, some people knew and like one person uh, who Like, it gets really confusing, right? Because, like, one neighborhood can be split in between deferred and not deferred. And someone who lived on the regular non-deferred side was like, oh, I didn't even know that my neighbors don't have a council member right now. So 
pretty wild. But It can vary from like one street to the next. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the president of the East Sacramento Community Association said the situation isn't ideal, but they're making the most of it. Her board had a meeting with uh, Mayor Steinberg and his staff in January. Like you mentioned earlier, the mayor's office is in charge of constituent services for these areas. Uh, meanwhile, Richard Falcon lives in the Deerfield Mesa Grande area in South Sac. He shared this perspective? The heart of the matter is we have no representation. And frankly, for better or worse, we have seen no outreach from the mayor's office, of the constituency office, directly to say, hey, you as this neighborhood association that are caught in this, let's connect. Okay, so while the East Sacramento Community Association has been in talks with the mayor's office, uh, Richard Falcone in the South Sacramento neighborhood impacted said that he hasn't been in communication with the mayor. So what is the mayor's office or even council members saying? Yeah, so Chinua Rhodes, the mayor's director of community engagement, says his staff will connect with all the neighborhood associations and the deferred areas if they haven't already. And actually, when I interviewed him, I mentioned what Richard had said. And he was like, oh, well, I know Richard. I'm going to reach out to him like right after this call type of thing. Um, The mayor's office in December also added two staff to help with the added workload. They're trying to get Uh, deferred area residents, the services they need, and are also coordinating with council members who might represent these places in the future. Specifically, council members Katie Valenzuela and Mai Vang have said that they will look out for these areas even even though they don't technically represent them right now. Right. Council member Valenzuela is really in the city center, which is closer to East Sacramento, and council member Vang is in the south portion of, of the city of Sacramento. So in the meantime, time, the mayor's office is offering some form of representation, but what are the consequences or even disadvantages to only having the mayor represent you? The mayor represents the entire city of about 527,000 people. So while his office is providing constituent services for 58,000 in the deferred area, he's still responsible for the rest of the city. Most of us have a city council member representing us and specifically advocating for the district we live in. The average council district has about 66,000 people. So combined, the deferred areas are almost that big population-wise. But Valenzuela says she doesn't want people to feel like they got the short end of the stick. We want to make sure that both the deferred and the accelerated areas know who to contact, that there is no wrong door, and that we're going to be there to help them connect with the resources they need. Um, We don't want anybody to feel like this whole transition period means that they got less than, you know, in the end, we want to make sure they know that we're here for them. All right. So I had you explain what deferred areas means. I just heard Councilmember Valenzuela mention accelerated areas. So what are those? They're sort of the opposite of deferred areas. In a way, you might say they have two council, two council members. About 54,000 people live in accelerated areas. They voted in 2020 in an even-numbered city council district. They voted again just last November because when some council boundaries changed, these folks became part of new odd-numbered districts. For example, some of the Land Park area elected Katie Valenzuela for District 4 in 2020. Two years later, in the June primary, they got to vote 
in the District 7 election for Rick Jennings, who ran unopposed. The opposite happened to deferred voting area residents. They voted in 2018 in odd-numbered districts, but they won't get to vote again, this time in an even-numbered district, until 2024. Wow, even hearing that, that is quite confusing to, 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 to go through. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Cap Radio's Sacramento government reporter, Kristen Lamb, about roughly 10 percent of residents who don't have a city council member and are considered in deferred areas until 2024. So given that this is the first time in the city of Sacramento that they are dealing with deferred areas as well as accelerated areas, how did this all happen? It's happening because the city changed the way it implements new district boundaries after redistricting. Previously, the city used to implement new district boundaries right after new lines were drawn every 10 years after the census. Uh, But when a recall effort started against Valenzuela, people asked, who can participate? The new or the old district for? So the city looked into it and the city attorney said only the people who elected her can recall her. And they decided the city should also change how it implements new district boundaries to follow state guidelines. Now, new boundaries will be used in the next regular elections when council members terms expire. Voters might recall Measure M on the November ballot clarified this. Okay, so given that now we understand why this is happening in the city of Sacramento, but more broadly, the issue of deferred areas due to redistricting along with the census, it doesn't only impact the city of Sacramento. Did you get a better understanding of how this could happen across the state, even across the country, since it's based off the U.S. census? Mm-hmm. I spoke with Jonathan Meta Stein, the executive director of California Common Cause, a nonpartisan pro-democracy group. He says deferred areas happen across the state and nation after redistricting. So that's every 10 years following the census. Uh, the California State Senate, for example, also has deferred areas because senators have staggered four-year terms. But the assembly doesn't have them because those offices have elections every two years. Here's Meta Stein explaining the issue. Deferred areas and um, residents who don't feel they have uh, direct representation is unfortunate, but it's not surprising. In fact, it's inevitable. Uh, In order to have redistricting, uh, that ensures that our districts continue to reflect our communities as they grow and change, you are going to have situations in a lot of places where um, because of how districts are redrawn and because of the way terms are staggered, you have some pockets of town or a school board or a county that don't have representation for a two-year period. All right. Well, at the end of the day, Kristen, this ultimately impacts residents. How are they looking at dealing with this situation over the next you know, year and a half? Many of them say they hope to meet or continue meeting with the mayor's office. Some also talked about keeping in touch with Valenzuela or Vang's office because they might officially represent them after the 2024 election. Amy Gardner lives in East Sac and is a founding member of Midtown East Sac Advocates. She goes to a lot of the mayor's town hall events, keeps in touch with his staff, and also discussed uh, like a yellow brick road with Katie Valenzuela's office. 
Like we talked about earlier, deferred areas differ demographically and have different concerns, wants, and needs. But Gardner says deferred area residents can collaborate because they are all missing council member representation. When you're sharing some of the same issues and everyone is looking at the same issues, what resources one person in ESAC can get could be used for people across the city. So um, I think sometimes it's good to lean into different groups for different reasons and maybe leaning into ESAC for um, connections and kind of um, problem solving could be a great thing to do. All right. So looking ahead, when 2024 comes around and this all kind of gets sorted out, what districts are these deferred areas going to be part of? They will become part of the new districts 2, 4, 6, and 8. Right now, Council Members Sean Laloey, Valenzuela, Eric Guerra, and Vang hold these seats. If the Council Members all run for re-election and win, they will represent these temporarily deferred areas. Uh, Residents will get to vote in the 2024 primary election for these offices and again in the November general if there are runoffs. Yeah, this is obviously very hard to visualize. You know, even for myself, I had to look at a map of of the city and district boundaries to see which areas were deferred. Do you have any tips for kind of just wrapping your head around all these different boundaries for deferred areas? If you're a visual person, we have an interactive map on CAP Radio's website that shows where deferred areas are. You can type in your address to check if you live in one. If you are in a deferred area, it says what district you'll be part of in December 2024. And if you don't live in a deferred area, it'll show who your council member is and what district you live in. Our digital managing editor, Chris Hagen, made the tool, and I think it really helps. Uh, At the same time, a lot of us don't think about boundaries for deferred areas or city council districts in our everyday lives, especially when there are also school board boundaries, county board of supervisor boundaries, and so on. Uh, Ving told me she personally believes council members have a responsibility to all all Sacramento residents. As council members, we represent certain areas, but collectively we make a decision as a council for the city, right? And I strongly believe that we all have a responsibility to serve all of our all of our constituents. Um, and for me, especially the South area, like families may live in District 5, but they may work in District 8, or they may live in District 8 and send their school, uh, send their children to a school that's across the street that's in District 5, right? And so uh, no matter the boundaries, really, we're all still a a community in the South area. And so uh, making sure that we are working together is absolutely critical to make sure that all of our neighborhoods and our families can thrive. Finally, Kristen, what did you take away from all of this? That was a lot of work on your part to understand and break down. Yeah, so deferred areas are temporary. They will regain council member representation after the 2024 election. But Sacramento will have new deferred areas for two years every decade as a side effect of redistricting. You can find an interactive map and more of my reporting on this at capradio.org. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thanks for having me. That is Cap Radio Sacramento government reporter Kristen Lamb sharing her reporting on why some residents within city limits in deferred areas are without council members. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment.
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California voters approved the legalization of recreational marijuana back in 2016, but Prop 64 was far from a light switch with even-handed impacts across the state. The cannabis industry, which includes taxes, regulations, ordinances, and permitting, varies greatly from one city and county to the next. It is complicated, to say the least, but the human cost can arguably be felt the most in what's long been called the Emerald Triangle, located in the far stretches of Northern California, which includes Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino counties. It's there where you'll find a long-established industry where individual small growers operated and even thrived prior to Prop 64. But six years after the commercial legalization of marijuana, residents say a crash in weed prices is having cascading, detrimental impacts on the local economy. Alexi Kosov is a capital reporter for CalMatters and has has been covering the ongoing challenges of California's cannabis industry. For his latest piece, he traveled to the Emerald Triangle to learn more. Welcome back to Insight, Alexi. Always good to be here. So you have joined us multiple times talking about the cannabis industry. You've really been following the commercialized cannabis industry in California pretty much since inception. But this is still very much an industry that is still taking shape in a legal sense, but it's also an industry and a workforce that has been in California for decades. And it seems like these two realities aren't always symbiotic with each other and often conflict with each other at great cost. Yeah, California is really unique compared to other states that have moved into the legal cannabis space because the industry was just so established here prior to this commercial legal market. And it's been really hard to transition from one to the other. So especially in the Emerald Triangle, where you have the roots of this industry going all the way back half a century to the countercultural movement of the 1960s and 1970s, there was this great effort to protect that industry and protect those farmers. And nobody's really been able to figure out how do we move into this modern, commercial, legal, open kind of market while still ensuring that these people who have these roots as these small farmers in this kind of underground economy can thrive. Mm -hmm. Given that your reporting on cannabis has really taken you all over the state, I mean, and you just visited the Emerald Triangle, which is Trinity, Humboldt, and Mendocino counties, what stands out to you about this part of the state for people who haven't traveled there? I mean... it's possible and probable that a lot of people haven't traveled there just because it's so remote. And I think that's something to really remember. Even from here in in Sacramento, it takes four or five hours to get to a lot of these communities. And they're tucked away in the mountains, and they're hard to get to, and they're small. And really what that ends up meaning is there's not a lot of economy besides weed. Yeah, And so 
that means that it is it's not just a business for people it's a culture it's a lifestyle and so as we've started to see this collapse of the industry over the last few years and particularly this this decline in the price um, it's meant this cascading effect into other businesses that are supported by cannabis farmers and, and cannabis workers um, shopping at their stores, going to their restaurants. Um, it's also meant that there's been a lot of, you know, uh, detrimental mental health impacts on people, you know, um, because they are struggling to figure out now how to move forward with their lives, um, having to shut down their businesses, um, you know, not knowing how to care for their families, not not knowing if there's a new career out there for them. So um, people are struggling in a lot of different ways, financially, emotionally, and it's really shaken these communities. Yeah, and you learned that by going up there and you spoke to many people up in this area. I'm going to start by sharing a snippet of an interview that I think really encapsulates the financial 180 that some people are reeling with. I mean, prior to the passage of Prop 64 and then the aftermath. So we're going to listen to Scott Morrison. He's a longtime resident of Hayfork, located in Trinity County, who's just seen and had a front row seat to the cannabis industry boom and bust. There was hundreds of millions of dollars in Trinity County was being generated. So money was just, and young kids, 25, 26 years old, made $300,000 in a year. It was just spoiled. And I should have seen it coming. I'm older. I should have seen it was going to collapse. And often when talking about the cannabis industry, we can get into the weeds of these policies, regulations, varying ordinances from one city or county to the next. That's all important, right? But it also leaves out the human cost. And by traveling up to the Emerald Triangle, you really took a different look at the impact of the industry with profiles, in a sense, of people whose livelihoods have been seriously harmed. What did you learn about taking a more personal approach to a really complicated, meaty issue? Yeah, I mean, this story emerged out of some conversations that I started having last fall with some people that I talked to previously for more policy-driven coverage. And they were just telling me, I have never seen these communities like this. I was up there for harvest season and they just felt like ghost towns compared to years past when they were booming with workers and, you know, there was so much activity and excitement. And so that got me started thinking about, okay, how do we really capture, you know, these effects beyond just, you know, talking about a number, a price. Um, and and when I was up there, I mean, to me, one of the most striking things was the day that I went out to this uh, food bank distribution in Hayfork. And um, I talked to this uh, director of the food bank. He's been doing it for six or seven years as a director, but he's involved, been involved for 20 years in, in the food bank. And he was saying that just over the last few years, they've more than doubled the amount of food they're giving out. Uh, the day I was there, uh, they served more than 200 families at uh, at this distribution. Um, there's only a few thousand people in in the town of Hayfork, so it's a pretty large chunk of people. And I think you know maybe the most striking illustration of how dire things are getting for some people is that they had to move this distribution from a church to the county fairgrounds last summer wow. because the demand has surged so much. So I think it just gives a sense of how sort of the bottom is falling out for a lot of people and they're and they're reaching out for help in ways they may, maybe never have before. When reading your reporting I was just genuinely surprised 
on how drastic incomes have dropped for people in the Emerald Triangle. You spoke with Herlinda Vang, a cannabis farmer in Hayfork, who says she's making less than a third now compared to when she first started growing, and she's relying on that food bank to get by. The community at large still love each other, still comfort each other. If I have something, I say, okay, anybody need something? then someone will come and pick it up. This community is like a giving community. And and when talking to her, Linda, she's a grower, but the loss of income, and you mentioned this briefly, it even affects small businesses outside of cannabis, from a sauce shop to a clothing boutique to shuttered stores. So you clearly obviously felt there was a problem with conversations that you were having last year, which drew you to explore the Emerald Triangle. But did that surprise you as well when you actually took all of that in? Yeah, I mean, I think going up there was really, really revealing. You know, you can kind of hear things from a distance, but to just go in person and feel like walking down, say, the main street of Garberville, which is um, one of the towns in southern Humboldt County that's been a real center of the cannabis industry down there. And half the town, uh, the stores in downtown are empty for example. Or, you know, talking to people. I, I met this guy, Anson Waite. He's a waiter up there. And he has he had two jobs, one at a cafe, one at a restaurant. In the last few months, the cafe closed. People have stopped coming to the restaurant. He says he's, you know, between his salary and his tips, he's down to maybe a quarter of what he used to make. And he hasn't been able to pay his rent for the last few months as a result. And that's somebody who doesn't even work in the industry, but is just feeling these really, really dire effects because there's not as much money moving through the community. Um, You know, people are closing their farms, moving away, and so there's just fewer jobs and, and, you know, people are, are struggling to make ends meet. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Cal Matters Capital reporter Alexi Kosef on his latest reporting on how the cannabis economy in the renowned Emerald Triangle has been impacted following the legalization of recreational marijuana. So a consequence of all of this is people looking for another line of work. And we're going to listen to Leanne Green with the Humboldt Workforce Coalition. You shadowed her at one of her workshops in Humboldt County at the library in Garberville. Many people are considering new jobs for the first time in their 40s, 50s. Like, ah, what do I do? Yeah, this is a huge shift for people where it's not just a job, it's a part of their identity and culture. How did you meet Leanne Green? You know, I when I started reporting this story, I started reaching out to people, you know, just who should I talk to about this issue? And hers was a name that came up from several people. Uh, she's like a she's a very interesting person in that community. She's such a you know sort of a lively um, person. She's such a booster for her community, and she's out there really trying to help people transition now from the cannabis industry into n- new jobs because so many people now are sort of for the first time perhaps ever in their careers wondering, what do I do? You know, they always thought that they'd be able to make a lot of money from weed, whether growing it or harvesting it or processing it. And uh, now they're sort of looking for what's next and it's not clear kind of what is out there, if anything. Um, so it was very interesting talking to her and sort of getting her perspective on 
a lot of the challenges that exist. Um, one thing that really surprised me was that even in a community like that, where weed has been sort of the main economy, there's a lot of stigma that exists for these workers as they're looking for new jobs. And a lot of people I talked to sort of shared that they were having trouble kind of getting their foot in the door in other lines of work because people would see that they had cannabis you know, on their resume and maybe not want to talk to them. There's sort of a sense that those people might be unreliable, lazy, whatever it might be. Yeah. And you, what you're speaking to are the consequences that go beyond just, you know, not having the same level of income, but also seeing kind of a loss of community that a lot of people expressed with you. We're going to listen to Gabriel Ferreira, whom you have interviewed, a longtime grower. Mostly what I'm heartbroken about is that I don't have my community anymore. These are people that I love, that I did business with. These are people that I that I worked with, that I learned with. Our children grew up together and I'm not part of it anymore. And it's all because I haven't got my, my ability to make money there anymore. Did you get a deeper understanding about the culture surrounding the longtime cannabis in industry? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that came up repeatedly for people from people like Herlinda, from people like Gabrielle is, you know, they don't this isn't just a business to them. They also feel like they're growing like a medicine for people. Right. To them, this is, you know, a service that they're providing. And so I think that is really important to understanding the cultural aspect of this industry is that. Um, it's it's seen as more than just a job, you know, and and so there's that aspect of feeling like that's being lost in the way that cannabis is transitioning to this commercial market uh, driven by big businesses that are not, you know, connected to those roots. And then obviously, you know, a lot of these people, again, lived in these really remote areas growing under very you know, difficult circumstances with law enforcement raids and all this. And so they really relied on each other as a community, um, their neighbors and and everything to kind of get through, you know, life. (laughs) And, And now, you know, Gabrielle, he, for example, had to move away from his farm. They're not growing anymore. And they're now living in Eureka looking for new jobs and and not haven't been able to find any yet. And so, you know, they literally were taken away from what had been their community because, you know, economic necessity. So um, there's just a lot of kind of pain um, on a lot of different levels that people shared with me. I mean, some of these interviews, they felt more like therapy sessions because, you know, people are still processing their grief over losing you know, losing what they imagined would be their whole whole livelihood. Yeah. You mentioned the stigma of even trying to find another job outside of cannabis and marijuana. You know, Gabriel and you also spoke to another grower, Ya Rainier. Both of them had tried to go legal, but six years later, they still didn't have their licenses approved. And Ya really talks about, you know, the stigma of working in cannabis while trying to find another job. So I don't know if it's a combination of the fact that I'm older also, but I, I would almost... I do feel like there is the stereotype of if you're a pot farmer, you might be a lazy, irresponsible pothead, too. And even Leanne with the Workforce Coalition acknowledges this reality when helping people find work outside of marijuana. On a resume, on a cover letter, I do recommend being a little bit more couched in the terms that somebody uses. So literally not using cannabis, but 
translating those skills into more socially acceptable terminology. So when you hear this, what's going through your mind as a journalist who focuses focuses specifically on the state capitol and the policies that come from the state legislature, including propositions that voters decide on, including Prop 64. I mean, I think we see this kind of stigma still playing out across the state in a lot of the battles, including some of the ones we've even talked about previously. But um, for example, there's still so many communities that are not opening up for dispensaries. They may have voted, the voters there may have voted to legalize marijuana, but they don't necessarily want it in their own communities, right? I think that's that same kind of mentality you know, that, that we're seeing in a lot of places where this thing has been illegal and underground for so long. And so even though the people who are doing it may have built their own businesses and been very successful and have all these kinds of skills, they're still looked at kind of askance, looked at, you know, maybe people are looking down their noses at them a little bit. And they're having difficulty transitioning into, you know, kind of the mainstream world. And um, a lot of them hope that Prop 64 would be the thing that would do that for them. And it hasn't in the way that, you know, was sort of promised. So I think it's very symbolic of a lot of the ways that Prop 64 has not lived up to what the voters expected it would be. And and we're continuing to see those struggles play out with policy as the state tries to sort of right the market, stabilize the market so that it doesn't completely collapse in California. Would you say it's safe to say that this was or fair to say that it's an unintended consequence of Prop 64? I think so. It's not like the people who wrote it set out to put the Emerald Triangle out of business. But there were a lot of people who were up there at the time warning that this could be a consequence. And so there were ways that this could have been handled that would have maybe avoided this a little bit, um, tried to create a little bit more of a safety net for those farmers up there. But the way the regulations were written really threw open the doors for these big businesses to come in. And, you know, the biggest problem right now is there's just a huge glut of supply and not enough demand. And that's why the price has collapsed so much. And um, so there are people in this business who are thriving, but they're more down in places like Santa Barbara where the regulations are written so that they can have these massive acres, you know, large farms and grow as much weed as they need to turn a profit. And up there in in the Emerald Triangle, they've got these little, you know, small farms, quarter acre, 10,000 square feet. They just can't compete. And, you know, that's the unfortunate reality of, of the economics of the industry. Where's your reporting taking you next on this matter? You've been covering it for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really um, big questions now is, you know, six years in, there are so many farmers who have tried to transition into legal market and still haven't been licensed yet. Um, And so that's a very interesting question to me to maybe dig into is, you know, why has this been such a you know, such a high hurdle for people who were already in the industry to, you know, legitimize and, you know, to the point where it's pushed a lot of people out of the industry. Um, There seems like there was a lot of, you know, policy failures there that might be worth digging into further. So 
Alexi, thank you so much for taking the trip and coming here and sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest. That is CalMatters Capital reporter Alexi Kosef sharing his latest reporting on how the cannabis economy and the renowned Emerald Triangle has been impacted following the legalization of recreational marijuana. Still ahead, one of the oldest continuously operating orchestras in the state is remembering a man who championed its music. The Stockton Symphony remembers its CEO, Philip West. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you head to the Stockton Symphony's website, you'll learn it's the third oldest continuously performing orchestra in California, surpassed in longevity only by the San Francisco Symphony and the Los Angeles Philharmonic. For nearly 100 years, the Stockton Symphony has inspired generations in San Joaquin County through the power of music. But like in most in the arts, the early days of the pandemic was one of the most challenging periods in the symphony's history, largely cutting them off from the community that they love and threatening its livelihood. But Philip West, the symphony's CEO, turned the challenge of the pandemic into an opportunity to grow and build deeper bonds through innovative programs. But last week, the symphony announced that Philip West passed away unexpectedly after complications from a medical procedure. Joining us now to share Philip's life and work, as well as how they plan to honor Philip in upcoming performances, is Peter Jaffe, music director and conductor of the Stockton Symphony. Thanks for taking the time, Peter. Well, thanks so much for having me here. Uh, It truly is a sad occasion. Um, I had the enormous honor and delight with working with Philip for 20 years. Uh, He actually did two iterations with the Stockton Symphony. He came as our ED, our executive director, from 2003 to 2007. And then he went away to become the managing director and chief administrative officer of the Memphis Ballet for over a decade. Then we were searching for an interim. He came back. He kind of delayed his retirement to do this. And it didn't take much arm twisting. Uh, to renew that wonderful working relationship, and he then became our full-time CEO. And this is just such a tragedy. We're, we're all trying to deal with it right now. Mm-hmm. We're, we're still kind of all in the denial stage. Yeah, it was such an unexpected loss of a leader and a friend and someone that you have known for the past two decades. What would you like people to know who are learning about Philip West for the first time? You know, when I first met him in 2003, I think all of us tend, whether we like to or not, to make snap judgments about people. And we were having a great dinner during his job interview. And he's one of the few people who I've been actually wrong about. You know, I knew that there was somebody really intelligent there with, with a lot of vision. But 
when you scratch beneath the surface and you get to know him really well, there's just such an enormous character there. And he was totally devoted to the symphony. Uh, my wife and I recently visited his husband, Larry Kissling, uh, and we spent three hours with him in their, their lovely home just reminiscing about all the things uh, that we did together. But he was a true visionary. And as you said, we regarded the challenge of the pandemic to be an opportunity. And so during that time, Philip really helped spearhead for us to take a lot of proactive programs rather than just being reactive. And so we developed our social media presence in a much bigger way than it had been before. We started all kinds of videos, and we now have a YouTube channel that has over 100 different pieces of content on it. We developed little ensemble programs, and this was all Philip's doing through get, getting grants and the, the support for it. We would take a little quintet and show up on a, a lawn of somebody's you know yard or their backyard um, or play you know, at, at a church or, or something. And that morphed into the magic of music where we take ensembles uh, to boys and girls clubs and to the children's home of Stockton or the homeless shelter. And so all these programs that we developed during the pandemic have morphed into kind of broadening our toolkit, as it were. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that Philip had two stints in leadership. I mean, the first one back in 2003 to 2007. But I, the second one feels kind of serendipitous because he, he opted to not retire. He came back to the Stockton Symphony right. as its CEO in 2019, right before the pandemic happened, and then taking a really innovative approach to to, to not react to it, but, but learn from it and use it to the symphony's advantage. I mean, it, it takes the cliche, I didn't sign up for this, to a new level, yeah, right? Right. You know, whenever we talked, we would always get really into deep business and questions of vision and everything. But we made sure that at least once every conversation, we had a really good laugh, you know? And through all the tears, I still remember those times of laughter, too. And, you know, that was one of his comments was, I didn't sign up for this, you know? But, but he really, you know, he helped get a lot of grants that helped get us through it. And one of the things we did pretty soon after the shutdown was to make sure that we maintained our rapport with you, Capital Public Radio. Specifically Paul Conley. Paul Conley was somebody that we really developed a relationship with all the way back in 2003 when we had a Brubeck Festival and then later when we launched Ansel Adams America. And Paul was really part of that conversation all the time. And a piece that uh, we premiered right before the shutdown was this piece by Chris Brubeck, The Time Out Suite, and that was not only played up here, but it eventually was played around the country on national public radio. We're going to take a quick listen to that performance right now.
Oh, wonderful. And I think it's just important. To, that was a world premiere, Chris Brubeck's Time Out Suite, to right. honor his his father, the late jazz legend, Dave Brubeck, on what would have been his 100th birthday, correct? That's right. And it was broadcast on NPR's performance today on his birthday. Um, you know, one of the wonderful things about working with Philip over many years is that we started blurring the lines between artistic leadership and administrative leadership. And we would sometimes have conversations like, I would take his role saying, well, it's a great idea, but can we afford it? And he would say, yeah, but it's such an artistic, compelling idea, you know? And so we enjoyed blurring the lines that way. And we've had a tradition in the Stockton Symphony of giving at least one world premiere every season. I'm now in my 28th season. They ain't kicked me out yet. (laughs) And uh, out of all those world premieres, I think we've done at least seven with the Brubeck family. Uh, I had the great privilege of getting actually to work with jazz legend Dave. And that's how I got to meet Chris, too. And so we would come out of a Brubeck Festival in 2003, and Philip and I would have these conversations. And, you know, it's hard to say who came up with what idea first because it was such a team. But we then launched Ansel Adams America in 2005, where there are over 100 slides of Ansel Adams while the symphony plays. And that was co-composed by Dave and Chris Brubeck. Wow. And just recently, of course, there was that timeout suite after Dave passed away. And yes, we did launch that piece. And again, you know, it was just wonderful that Philip was able to step in and say, how can we let the whole world know about that? I mean, you think about when when thinking about the Ansel Adams piece, I mean, the visual component along with the melodies of a symphony and an orchestra, that's such a collaboration that, that really does need teamwork for to have that vision come to life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so since Philip was able to contribute really interesting artistic ideas as well as administrative and vice versa, you know, I sometimes have interesting hooks that we might contribute to marketing. Uh, Philip was one of the people who spearheaded the idea that we give this program that's coming up on April 1st and 2nd. It's called Unsilenced Voices, Resilience and Hope. And we are dedicating now those two performances to the memory of Philip. And the program is really very powerful and dramatic. It it features composers who are actually composing in a concentration camp during the Holocaust before they were murdered. And we have some of those pieces and other pieces written by composers who are reflecting upon the tragedy. Uh, There's Shostakovich's Babiar Symphony, which is the first movement with words by Yevtushenko, is all about tens of thousands of Jews who were murdered in a ravine just outside of Kiev. And so it kind of hooks in with a lot of very pertinent and potent uh, contemporary issues. And there are other pieces on the program like uh, Michael Tilson Thomas's From the Diary of Anne Frank. And we're having a young 14-year-old woman be the narrator. So his piece has been done usually with adult narrators, and it'll be really compelling to see a young woman who was Anne Frank's age narrating that. We have music from Schindler's List by John Williams, and it does end with hope. You know, there's a place for us. And so uh, the, the dedication of this program to him is very apt at this point. Yeah, I would imagine it's going to take on an even deeper meaning on what is already a very powerful performance on April 1st and April 2nd. When you made that post, the Stockton Symphony, announcing Philip's unexpected passing, 
the response was was really profound. I mean, it just showed how he touched so many lives and, and how respected he was. Well, that's absolutely right. I've been getting calls from all around the country. You know, social media really has a, a wide net. And uh, people calling up, uh, reigniting wonderful reminiscences. I was just talking on the drive up here with Chris Brubeck and uh, all the projects that we've done together. And it's, it's really touching how many people Philip touched the lives of. And that's because he really bought on to the idea, which is really true, that in a business like ours, it's really all about developing relationships. And he developed fantastic relationships with the African-American Chamber of Commerce, the Asian Chamber of Commerce, the, the uh, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and going out and meeting key people in our community to help all the projects that we're doing come to life. What do you believe will be Philip's lasting legacy? Wow. Um, I don't know if we can identify one thing that, that will be it. I think just the fact that we're in a strong position now and still really vibrant as an organization, uh, a lot of that was Philip, you know, who really took, as I said before, the, the, the challenge as an opportunity. And, and we're just going back and uh, we've been now performing for a season and a half with live performances with full orchestra. And I think all the different community outreach programs that he still, still has uh, helped us develop, that's part of our legacy now, and it's part of our ongoing mission. Our mission, by the way, how many organizations do you know that have the word joy in their mission statement? Well, I love it. Our, our mission is to inspire joy and build community through the magic of music. Finally, Peter, given that you knew Philip personally and professionally for, for 20 years. You know, in this time, the last week, kind of navigating his passing, do you go back to certain memories that, or, or reflect in a, in a, in a, on special moments in, in a very deep way? How can you not? Uh, you know, of course. I mean, they haunt you. Uh, I, the, all of us, uh, all our orchestra members, the board, the staff, our volunteer organization, the Alliance, we all have these wonderful memories. I think one of my favorite memories that I hadn't thought about for a long time goes all the way back to 2003 when we were interviewing him. And we went to a restaurant in Stockton. I don't know if that restaurant still even exists. But we were looking each other in the eye and really, you know, trying to establish a deep conversation. And... The waitress came by to take our order, and she asked me what I wanted. And I, sa I said, have you worked here for a while? Do you know what everything tastes like? And she said, yes. And I said, surprise me. And he looked in my eyes like, this is somebody who, who I know knows how to trust people, you know? And I looked in his eyes, and we were having a good laugh. And I, there was something equally sort of reciprocal in those yeah. opening conversations. And, you know, I, I come back to that. That's so wonderful. Thank you for sharing, Peter. Peter Jaffe is the music director and conductor of the Stockton Symphony, remembering his friend and colleague, Philip West. You can find more information on their shows in April on our Insight page. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.